For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a new exhibition at the Center for Creative Photography celebrates the art and life of Linda McCartney and her many connections to the Sonoran Desert. Remembering Paula Fan, a local artist whose vibrant personality touched many lives. And explore more than 100 years of history at the Warren Ballpark, which will soon host the Copper City Classic Vintage Baseball Tournament. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The University of Arizona Center for Creative Photography has debuted the Linda McCartney Retrospective, It's a traveling exhibition that features nearly 200 photographs, as well as never-before-seen screen prints and images, along with other archival material from the McCartney family. Linda McCartney's barrier-breaking career spanned across three decades, and she was well-known for her photographs of rock legends including Jimi Hendrix, Aretha Franklin, and, of course, the Beatles. Katja Mendoza reports. in Paris, waiting for a flight, when this guy came up to me and said, Have you got a light? Well, I was born. Before she was Linda McCartney, Linda Eastman was a professional photographer during the mid-1960s. She was an art history and photography student at the University of Arizona and got her first big break as a photographer while working as a receptionist for Town & Country magazine. While out on assignment for Rolling Stone magazine in 1967 to shoot the Swingin' 60s, she found herself at a Georgie Fame show at London's Bag O'Nails Music Club, where she would meet Paul McCartney for the first time. The two would marry two years later and were inseparable. McCartneys would split their time between London, Scotland, and Tucson, where they bought a ranch near the Rincon Mountain District. Always with a 35mm camera, Linda was well known for chronicling the musical revolution of the decade. Sarah Brown, the photographic curator of the Linda McCartney archive, says that McCartney was very much a photographer in her own right. Just because she took pictures of family life and domestic life in the everyday doesn't make her photographs any less, um, have any less artistic integrity than other photographers working at, at her time. 
Brown has been working with the Linda McCartney Archives since 2016 and with the Center for Creative Photography for this particular show since 2018. It definitely came from the McCartney family who really see Tucson as a place very close to Linda's heart and also they felt like it would be a real homecoming for her photography. Tucson is the place where she first picked up a camera. She was here as a student at the University of Arizona studying art history. Meg Jackson-Fox, associate curator of the CCP, says last fall the center was working with a seminar of undergraduate students to collaborate on a student-led interactive mobile tour app for the museum. And actually Paul suggested, it was his idea, he was like, oh, well, if they want to ask me specific questions about the exhibition, about Linda, I'd be happy to answer them. So then I proposed this to the students and said, oh, you know, Paul McCartney is happy to be interviewed by you if you have any questions. So each, each student submitted questions to him and then he responded. So we're going to have in the, in the mobile app, the guide to this exhibition, we have a curatorial tour, but then we also have the students interview with Paul in that tour too. So we're excited. The center's approach to showing photography, learning about photography, combined with it being in Tucson, they just saw it as the perfect first place for Linda's art to come back to the U.S. The CCP synonymously debuted its Sessions on Creative Photography exhibit that embraces the work of Hazel Larson Archer that showcases her avant-garde work during the mid-century. Linda is also known to have said, Archer inspired her to become a photographer. Hazel kind of almost taught how to see, that's what she said. She didn't focus on how to work a camera and and how to make prints. She focused on how to see, how to, you know, look at the world. And that's something Linda took throughout her life, how to look at light, how to look at shadows, how to engage with people. And what um, Hazel taught was also she didn't crop her images and she also just really engaged with life in the moment. And then if a photo was a byproduct of that, brilliant. And that's what Linda took throughout her life. So you'll see in the exhibition that the images of her family or people she engaged with are very intimate and candid and it's because she was never probing for a scene and that's something she definitely took away from her classes with Hazel. Brown says that within the Archer photographs, there is an existing photo of a slightly open door covered by a shadow of a tree and that she found a very similar photo within the McCartney archives that Linda took almost 30 years later. Becky Senf, the chief curator of the CCP, says that Linda broke barriers in a number of ways. I think technically we talk about her being the first woman photographer to have the cover of Rolling Stone magazine as a photojournalist, and I think that's really significant. 
And it's a good reflection of the importance of her photojournalism career in which she made portraits of rock and roll icons that feel really approachable and accessible and you get a sense of them as individual people. And I think that that's really important. She didn't let these rock and roll musicians define their image for her, but instead she's able to tell us something about what she perceives in them. But then I think it's also really significant that she spent so much of her photographic career on pictures of her family and that she really raised that domestic component of her life into an art-worthy sphere. And they're such moving portraits. I think that people will really be surprised by how um, open those pictures feel and how much of a sense we get of what her relationship was to the people she was photographing and how pleasurable that is to see it in the photographs. One of Linda's well-known traits was how relaxing she was and how disarming that was to the people she was photographing. There was a kind of casual energy about it, and I think that the result is exactly what you're describing, where we get a sense of people as they were rather than them performing an identity that keeps us distanced from them. So what we're getting to see is a photographer who's able to uh, create an environment where that performance is dropping away and we're getting a sense of the person without that self-presentation. Semph says that this is the first time the CCP will have all of its galleries installed since before the pandemic knowing the kind of energy that we're going to have as people come to the exhibitions it it truthfully it's very emotional we do this work because we want to share the pictures with our audiences and it's been really hard to not have been able to do that fully um, and so we've been building back up to this moment with some great exhibitions and now that we're um, able to share the Linda McCartney exhibition along with the complimentary exhibitions. It feels really dynamic and exciting and um, very vibrant. I'm really looking forward to it. The free ongoing exhibit will also feature a lecture series inspired by Linda's work as an activist, as well as musical performances inspired by the exhibit, as well as community table events. Brown says that a big goal of the McCartney family and this exhibition is to raise Linda's profile as a photographer. And, you know, like other many women artists we're learning about today, we're also overshadowed by their male counterparts or not included in art history. And so we just see Linda as one of those women who's finally getting, you know, time to, to shine um, on her own. And I think that's what people really take away. I think they also 
often take away that she was very experimental. You'll see there's a whole room of photographic experimentation, Polaroid, cyanotypes, screen prints. We even have a really special thing in the Tucson exhibition, which is a stained glass piece she did. And I think that also makes people realize that while she wasn't just photographing, you know, Jimi Hendrix in the 60s, like this, is, this was a love affair with photography, but it was also her career until, you know, the late 90s when she passed away. And so I think people really gain a lot of respect for her, her skill and her artistry. Up until her death in 1998, Linda continued to use her platform to raise awareness for various causes and has left a lasting legacy in her own right, far beyond just being Paul's wife in news. The Linda McCartney Retrospective exhibit ends on August 5th. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Katia Mendoza. Tucson's classical music community and those of us at AZPM suffered a tragic loss in February with the passing of pianist, teacher, cat lover, and friend Paula Fan. She was one of the brightest and most engaging people you could ever hope to meet. Even on top of her busy schedule of teaching and performing around the world, Paula Fan always found time to contribute more to the things she valued. That included countless hours volunteering here at AZPM during our pledge drives. I miss talking to her about the Loving Cat Rehabilitation Center that she operated out of her Tucson home. Someone who knew Paula far longer was Dr. Rex Woods, an accomplished pianist and professor emeritus at the Fred Fox School of Music. He wrote this personal tribute to his friend and mentor, Paula Fan. I am having a difficult time putting into words the depth of loss I feel at Paula's passing. I realize that I am only one whose life she lifted among tens of thousands. I met her in 1977, and she quickly became a mentor who lifted my vision of a life in music. She has been a constant inspiration these many years, a gifted teacher, life coach, treasured colleague, and a true friend. I cannot understate the influence for good she has been in my life and the life of my family. As students in her art song class, Mary Peterson, my future wife, and I prepared a new song each week to present for the class. Paula had a knack for quickly coming to understand the unique affinities and potential of each student. She helped every student choose repertoire in which they could shine. When Mary and I were married, Paula presented us with a precious gift, beautiful new copies of Wolf's Italianisches Liederbuch, 
We were delighted with the gift, but wondered when and if we could ever have occasion to learn and perform this monumental work. Paula had unrelenting optimism coupled with action. I eventually came to understand that when she introduced a possibility or dream, she had a way of making it come to pass. After our wedding, Mary and I moved to Austin, Texas, and I began my academic career teaching piano and accompanying at the University of Texas at Austin. Eight years later, I was back at the University of Arizona in a new role on the piano faculty. It was pure joy to work again with Paula and the other keyboard professors, Professors Marsh, Zumbro, Erlings, and Johnson. Not long after that, the director of the school announced a major expansion project for the music building that would include a new recital hall. In characteristic fashion, Paula seized the opportunity and proposed that we present the Italianisches Liederbuch as the inaugural recital in Halsklaw Hall. There were many reasons why it seemed impossible at the time. We were young parents struggling with many challenges and competing demands on our time and resources. Nevertheless, Paula's enthusiasm and encouragement carried the day, and we soon found ourselves immersed in the project. A year later, it all came to pass, just as Paula had predicted. Mary and I were at one side of the Holsklaw Hall stage with a beautiful new Steinway. Charles Rowe and Paula were at the other Steinway, on the other half of the stage. Mary and Charles each sang half the songs. Paula and I recited English translations prior to performing each song. Preparing and performing these songs was a priceless experience for Mary and me. We grew together as musicians, and the whole experience increased our love for each other. Working on the project had a way of making everything else in our life a little easier. It strengthened our capacity in a way that went beyond other diversions, rest, or recreation. I have no doubt that those who studied and collaborated with Paula will understand the significance of what Mary and I experienced in this project. I watched her work small miracles like this over and over again. She met people where she found them. She saw the beauty and potential in every life, and she challenged everyone in the most loving way to far exceed their previously believed expectations for themselves. Dear Paula, you were a bright light in this often dark world. Your legacy is manifest in the lives of countless others whose lights shine brighter because of you. Sleep well, dear friend. That tribute was by Rex Woods. For more than a century, Warren Ballpark has been an important part of the Bisbee community. The first weekend in April, residents are holding their biggest annual fundraiser for this historic property. Mike Anderson is a broadcaster on Bisbee's KBRP, and he's picked up a lot of local history over the years. Anderson spoke to Tony Paniagua about the Copper City Classic Vintage Baseball Tournament and the meaningful real estate where it's played. Mike Anderson, a historian and founding member of the Friends of Warren Ballpark. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tony. You were telling me this park was built in 1909, and it has a strong impact on your community. Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. It was built by the Calumet and Arizona Mining Company in 1909 as part of the Warren town site, the first planned community in Arizona. Up to that time, there was no place in Bisbee. Obviously, Old Bisbee was not a good venue for a baseball park. 
So when the opportunity arose to build a park in a more open part of the community, um, it was built in 1909 and cost $3,600, which is a little bit less than it cost to build a modern ballpark. And it's still going strong. What is it being used for nowadays? It's the oldest continuously used multi-sport facility in the United States. The Bisbee Unified School District has owned it since 1936, and they have been good stewards. That's that's the reason it survived. And uh, it's been used since the very beginning for baseball, football. It's been used also for soccer, rugby, rodeo, Wild West shows, silent blockbuster movies, also for any other kind of large event that required a big venue outdoors, and it's still used for that purpose today. Bisbee High School has used it as their home field for football and baseball since 1909 as well. And it was also, of course, the scene of the crime, the Bisbee deportation of July 1917. Tell us about that, please. Well, that was an event during the very beginning of World War I, where the mining companies, acting in concert with the Cochise County Sheriff, organized a secret posse of about 2,000 men to uh, round up and deport from town an equal number of striking miners and other undesirables. And uh, about 1,200 of those men were taken down to the ballpark and told to either give up unions and renounce the strike or be loaded onto cattle cars and shipped out on the uh, mining company-owned railroad never to return. And what is your connection to Warren Ballpark? Because I know you lived in Tucson prior to moving to Bisbee, right? Yeah. Warren Ballpark was the very first place that I ever uh, visited in Bisbee. I came down in um, early spring 1971 as a sports stringer for the now defunct Tucson Daily Citizen to cover a baseball game between Chihuahua High School, where I went to school, and uh, Bisbee High School. And I looked at that ballpark, and uh, it was love at first sight. So when we moved down in 1989, I became interested in... uh, Doing things at the ballpark, I got affiliated with the semi-pro team down there, and then later on we formed the organization, nonprofit organization called the Friends of Warren Ballpark that assists the Bisbee Unified School District in raising money, raising consciousness, uh, researching the incredible history of the ballpark. And in doing so, what we've done is we've uh, we brought the old lady uh, back to life in terms of her physical health. And of course, you're getting ready for a major annual event, the 12th Annual Copper City Classic Vintage Baseball Tournament at Warren Ballpark. Right, Tony. Um, What we do as a fundraiser, and this is our principal fundraiser uh, for the year. We also uh, raise money through grants, sales, and merchandise, and tours, and things like this. But our principal fundraiser, and the thing that raises the consciousness about the ballpark more than anything else, is our tournament. And it's a two-day event, and we uh, host... This year it's going to be nine teams, and it's vintage baseball. This is baseball played the way uh, it was played when Abraham Lincoln was running for president in 1860. So the rules are similar to but different from modern baseball. The players all wear uniforms that are identical to uniforms going back as early as the 1840s and 50s, and we have a team this year, uh, all-female team from Phoenix, the Maricopa Maidens, who are going to be playing in uniforms that are the uh, identical to the 1940s Rockford Peaches of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So we're going to have a team playing baseball in skirts at Warren Ballpark. And since we had two women from Bisbee who were on teams 
Chicago Colleen's and um, Springfield Sally's. It's kind of a, a, a really nice thing that we've got women down there to honor those two ladies. And you honor uh, famous baseball players from the past uh, during this vintage baseball tournament? Yeah, every year we pick two people that are affiliated with Warren Ballpark, uh, made significant contributions to sports or to something else uh, related to the ballpark or related to baseball. This year we picked Carl Lee Glass, and Carl uh, Glass was a um, cavalry trooper of the 10th United States Cavalry, the original Buffalo Soldiers, stationed at Fort Huachuca and also at Camp Naco down in Bisbee. And doing deep research on uh, Bisbee baseball, I kept running across the name Carl Glass in 1920, and every time he pitched against Bisbee six times, he beat him. So I looked him up in the Negro Leagues encyclopedia, figuring somebody that's that good of a pitcher is obviously uh, not going to stop playing baseball once he gets out of the Army, and found to my, not to my surprise, but my pleasure that he had a long and uh, successful career in the Negro Leagues afterwards. The other person we're honoring is Jesse Sandoval Flores, who was the first Mexican-born pitcher to make it to the big leagues in the United States. Jesse came to the U.S. in 1923 with his family from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, and uh, lived in La Abra, Orange County, California. His, his dad was a fruit picker. Jesse dropped out of school early to become a fruit picker with his parents. And at this time, Hispanics were not allowed to participate on the upper levels of West Coast baseball. They were actually banned from playing in the Pacific Coast League, which is something I just learned recently. Jesse didn't get into professional baseball until the age of 24, which is a relatively late age in life. But as soon as he auditioned in 1938 for the Los Angeles Angels, uh, they realized what talent he had and signed him to a contract with the Bisbee Bees of the Class C Arizona Texas League. He ended up being one of the best pitchers in professional baseball that year, and he ended up going to the Chicago Cubs, the at that time Philadelphia Athletics, now the Oakland A's, and then later with the Cleveland Indians. And Mike, if somebody is not sports oriented or doesn't play baseball, why should they go to the Copper City Classic? Because it's a lot of fun. Jim Boughton, who wrote the book Ball Four, was one of the first tell-all baseball books, a New York Yankees knuckleball pitcher, started a vintage baseball league after he left professional sports. And he came up with the best description of what vintage baseball is. He said, first of all, it's living history. This game was actually created by Civil War reenactors who got tired of fighting the Battle of Gettysburg over and over and over. They wanted something different that would have no foregone conclusion no predestined outcome. So they decided to dust off the ancient game of baseball, two words, as it was played in 1860. So it's living history. It is a wonderful uh, small town venue. We have no professional staff. It's all volunteers. Every penny that we generate in revenue goes towards refurbishing the ballpark. It's 113 years old. And everybody knows 113 year old needs a lot of facelifts and um, replacement parts. Mike Anderson, historian and founding member of the Friends of Warren Ballpark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. The Copper City Classic will be held on Saturday, April 1st and Sunday, April 2nd, with teams from Arizona, California, and Colorado. For complete information, go to friendsofwarrenballpark.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.